The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we again um, want to give thanks to you. We think about uh, the testimony of the psalmist as we approach these last uh, group of psalms and uh, introducing and concluding with the praise Yah or the, the call to hallelujah. And we understand that. We want to be uh, people that affirm and declare the, the praise and the excellencies of our, our great God who's made himself known in such a diverse and magnificent range of ways from being the creator and Lord of all things to the perfect king who rules and cares for his people in ways that um, are beyond our understanding or capacity to appreciate. But what we do see and what we do hear and understand is the abundance of mercy and the abundance of compassion, provision and help, um, comfort, joy. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would uh, help us to, to see that clearly, um, that we might appreciate it, and in our appreciation, yield back thanks to you. That thanks would be a, a worshipful gratitude and thanks, affirming you and um, rejoicing in you, not just for your, your benefits, but your benefits are... Um, extraordinary and, and deserving of attention and uh, exaltation, but because of your person, which they reflect as well. And so we thank you and ask, even as we even, even as, as uh, we were just praying, that we would be the worshipers that you've designed and called us to be. Um, and we desire for um, all peoples to, to have pure hearts, to, to lift holy hands in worship. We do think about your church in Russia and the, the larger uh, Soviet uh, bloc, as it were, and we rejoice in the testimony that Frank was able to provide that uh, and just the unique peak into Providence. Um, he got to see firsthand how you have cared for your church in circumstances and ways that surprise us. Um, not surprise us in the sense that you grow your church, you keep your church, but to see that in a way that uh, powerful expressions of oppression could not overcome the, the testimony and, and faith of your people. And that's your doing. It's not that they were particularly resilient, though they may well have been resilient and tenacious, but that was the work of the Spirit of God in them. And so we rejoice in that. We thank you for, um, in your providential kindness also, for uh, taking a, a man who grew up in this area and worked hard to to be faithful in his work and went off to be trained, to be dispatched for that pocket of time that you afforded um, Frank and others to, to invest in the Russian men and pastors who now are carrying on the work. So we, we thank you for that and thank you for the ongoing work here as well. We, we want to be found faithful where you've placed us and for this time and season you have placed us here. Um, you may dispatch some of us in different places and time and we will be confident and joyful about that. Um, but for now this is where we are and we want to be found faithful. So we ask that you would Give us the grace to steward the scriptures and our personal lives well and our families as a church body, um, that we would grow in grace, grow in understanding, uh, be transformed. Think about even as um, was mentioned, the, the concern about the, the assault of the false teachers that was introduced when the Iron Curtain fell. And we need to have a sober awareness of that as well. We, we've grown up in a context in which uh, we're familiar with um, threats to the gospel and distortions, more perversions and distortions than outright threats. Um, but we thank you that uh, as we labor through things like Second Peter, it, it brings these things to our attention, not in some 
sensational way so that we can go um, hunting after uh, wicked teachers, but so that we can be uh, sober and aware and prepared to um, articulate truth in a, in a way that expresses uh, consistency and uh, resolve and uh, the call to steadfastness and the call to even oppose when necessary. We recognize it's not always the most attractive um, uh, requirement, but it is it is a necessary one to, to oppose that which would distort your gospel. So help us to be faithful in that and to, to hear uh, Peter's pastoral heart in that and the, the heaviness of heart um, that accompanies the end of his life and ministry to your church to remind them that this this is an inevitable reality um, that uh, false teachers will come in amongst us, that mockers will come as we'll begin to look at today. But again, we don't lose heart in this. Uh, rather, we, we're aware and uh, we, we want to be found faithful. Uh, we want to be found faithful when you do come. Uh, we recognize that it could be at any moment. It'll be a surprise, as it were. And uh, much of us, uh, the biggest part of us, longs for that immediately. Um, but there is a, a measure of tension that we would ask for your patience to continue. We do think about many loved ones that we are praying for that wouldn't be prepared um, for the thief to come in the night, as it were. But So we do ask that your patience would continue and your waiting, um, that others might come to salvific faith. We do pray for our church family. Thank you for those who are here. and uh, We want to be good students and stewards of your word, to hear and grow together, to continue our worship together. Uh, especially as we center ourselves in the scripture, as we've sung now and prayed, and as we'll enjoy a sweet time of fellowship. But we do ask for those who are not able to be here. Um, uh, sickness is a reality and other struggles that accompany this temporal life with temporal bodies, and we ask that you give them um, grace uh, in these times of uh, uh, necessary separation. Um, help them to recover well, if, if, if you'd be so pleased, and for them to, to maintain a joyful um, honoring attitude through the struggles that do accompany these things and help us to love one another, even um, in absence, to, to care for one another, be mindful of one another, um, invest and care for one another. And again, um, we're approaching your word, so may we handle it in a way that reflects that we believe it's the word of God and that we will submit ourselves accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so uh, this morning we're going to begin our engagement, the third and final chapter of 2 Peter. And in this time we'll be introduced to yet another opponent of Christ's church, namely the mocker. So this, after spending about a month examining the, the false teacher who was the, the primary focus of 2 Peter chapter 2, and I would argue is the greater threat because of the nature of their deceptive influence. They're, they're not quite as obvious as it were as the mocker is, but nevertheless we do have another uh, threat and uh, opposition to Christ's church that Peter would have us look at. But And with this, as we, as we will see, the mocker is also closely identified with the false teacher. They're different for sure, but they're very close in a lot of ways. So both have carnal motivations, uh, both in their uh, attempts to undermine, they both attempt to undermine and discredit the truths of the scriptures, particularly as they relate to things to come, namely judgment and glory. So again, both have carnal roots, as it were, and Peter's going to talk about that. We'll work through that more next week. And both uh, attempt to distort and undermine the integrity and the authority of the scriptures. So these two opponents of Christ's church, the false teacher and the mocker, are in a way complementary to one another. 
uh, not in a, a favorable sense, but they, as it were, they mirror one another. And I know the notes there might be like, is there something wrong? There's nothing wrong. I just wanted to, to put before you very obviously that they're different, but they mirror one another in terms of their, the way they handle themselves, the way they, uh, their influences are, and the way they're rooted. So the one, though, is, is covert in its influences. The other, more overt in their assaults. So the more covert in influence would be the false teacher. They don't want to be obvious, not necessarily, uh, at least in a, a, a major way. They want to be able to infiltrate, to, to come into the life of the church and to persuade away from the roots of, of true gospel integrity. Versus the mocker, there's obviously no regard for being covert or um, sneaking in. They're just more boisterous, more obvious. Because it's the nature of mocking. So Peter opens his engagement with the mocker in a like way or a similar way that he did with the false teacher, addressing the, the nature of his writing and directing the believers to the authoritative word of God. Now, during our extended time in, in chapter 2, I employed three plus whiteboards. So if you have gotten to know me in any measure, you're probably not surprised that when we moved to our new house, I was thrilled to find a nice wall that could be uh, have whiteboard paint applied, and so you can maximize wall space. Who needs pictures and all the other silly stuff, especially if the wall's angled, things will just fall off, but you can write at an angle. And so I've employed three-plus whiteboards to try and keep my mind wrapped around the character and conduct of the false teacher. You know, when Peter gives a whole chapter to something like that, um, I don't want to just look at one thing and think, oh, that's really bad. And I want to understand that. That is really bad, and I do want to understand it, but I want to understand it in the larger totality. So I was trying to work through their, their tangled-like influence, and I wanted to see not only the details of a given passage each week, but I want to see the sweeping whole, as it were. So I wanted to, to note patterns of how Peter would describe them and, and their destructive impact and influence. And one of those whiteboards consisted of only a list. So if you came into my study, my office over here, you might think, am I trying to hide? No, I just needed an easel there. And that one just had a list, just a list of all the things that he said about them, all the, the ways that he talked about them. And then marked that up further and came up with a list of about 25 observations about the false teachers from chapter 2. And many items in that list multiple references to it. So you think about that. 25 things, occasionally multiple references. He had a lot to say about those false teachers. And from that list, I tried to draw patterns. And two important patterns that emerged that I view as complementary to the mockers, again, were their abusive use of words and the matter of God's judgment. So among the abusive use of words, I would include the following. And so we have a number of references here. I'm going to just highlight a few things about them. And again, words matter. And the abusive use of words, that's the character, the modus operandi of the false teacher. They're teaching, they're using words, but also the nature of the mocker. So first we see 2 Peter 2.1. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. By what, the, what way they're going to verbalize, articulate, write, preach, teach about them, even denying the master who bought them, denying sw or bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And then we saw chapter 10 verses, or excuse me, chapter 2 verses 10 to 12. And especially those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust and despise authority, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they blaspheme glorious ones. This was not just uh, giggling or um, making silly cartoons. This is verbal engagement. They're blaspheming glorious ones, whereas angels who are greater in strength and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals... Born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. Blaspheming, again, you know, that verbal assault, that verbal belittling or verbal making little of something, 
where they had no knowledge, will the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. And chapter 2, verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they enticed by sensual lust of the flesh those who barely escaped from the ones who conducted themselves in error. So more overtly here, so speaking out arrogant words. Now we know, again, that words matter, right? Words always matter. It's not just in diplomacy. It's not just in speeches. Words matter. And by the nature of teaching, words are the principal tool of the false teacher, a tool that's abused by the false teacher. And they use their words to produce distortions of truth that in turn constitute their destructive heresies. They use their words to express their profound and ignorantly uninformed arrogance and enticing others to sin. So again, words are a formidable tool of the false teacher, and plainly enough, the mocker as well. Now, regarding judgment, there was a, remember, a three-part intensive example of judgment, specifically that Peter developed, broadly speaking, but he was going to speak to the false teacher in particular with that. So we saw of God's righteous judgment in 2 Peter chapter 2, um, ranging from fallen angels to Noah's generation, and then finally the cities of the valley that constituted a pretty decent section of chapter 2, as it were. But there were also direct statements regarding judgment as well. So again, chapter 2, verse 1, if you notice at the end there, we have even denying the master who brought them, or bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Again, this is, this is the, the outcome of the false teacher, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Uh, verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That set us up for that three-part example, I believe 4 through 10, if I'm not mistaken. And then verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And then finally, or, or verse 2, um, in chapter 2, verse 13, But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed, blaspheming where they have no knowledge. What's the outcome? Will the, will the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering unrighteousness as the wages of their unrighteousness, considering it a pleasure to revel in the daytime, their stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you. So again, the outcome, the produ producing of their unrighteous wages will be destruction, now, finally, verse 17, these are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom, remember, the black darkness has been kept. So there's been a, a reservation, as it were, for the righteous. We saw in First uh, Peter chapter 1, a reservation for eternal joy in the presence of the Lord. There's been a reservation of judgment for the fallen angels and now a reservation of judgment for the false teachers as well. So their judgment is clear. Um, it was a weighty, hard chapter. We saw they abused words. They used them in, in malicious and wicked ways to distort truth, to mislead others. And then we saw the treatment of judgment. And the treatment of judgment was that God will judge them. They will suffer destruction. They will have a sure end. He gives a lot of attention to that. And so in one sense, we don't want to be morbid, but I hope you're encouraged by the fact that as terrible as they are, God will judge them. And that's a good thing. Again, we don't rejoice in that in one sense, but at the same time, we are. there's a satisfaction that the righteousness of God is maintained and that holiness will prevail. So their judgment is clear, secured by God, framed in destruction, a matter they would most eagerly suppress. Why? Because judgment is the plainest reminder of accountability. And so, as you remember, I hope you remember, 2 Peter is one of the most challenged books in the New Testament. And I would argue that's likely, not because... 
well, there's dynamics and challenges with authorship or grammar or historical things. That's not the issue. That's not why Second Peter is ultimately fundamentally challenged. I would say it's in no small part because of its firm rebuke of the false teachers and mockers, along with its clear expression of their sure and righteous judgment. Because contrary to maybe popular preference or popular belief even, if you remove judgment, you don't have freedom. You understand that, right? You don't have real freedom. Rather, you are left with self-destructive anarchy. And the false teacher would remove judgment because, again, removal of judgment is a removal of accountability. And it appears to have a measure of freedom, but that's not freedom. And one of the plainest examples of this can be found in the culmination of Lot's torment while living in Sodom. Remember, we had to wrestle through that. Righteous Lot, his soul was tormented while he lived amongst the men of Sodom. And then we see a culmination of what does it look like for the wicked and the unrighteous to want to wish and suppress judgment? Well, we see an example in Genesis 19, verse 9. But they said, step aside. Furthermore, they said, this one, Lot, came to sojourn, and already he is persistently acting like a judge. Now we will treat you more wickedly than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and stepped up to break the door. So we saw this: the men of Sodom would not have a judge restrain them. And they in turn experienced an absolute and final judgment, right? Remember, they were consumed with fire. The judge of all the earth, who judges justly, judged them. Now, as we'll see, like the false teacher, the mocker employs arrogantly abusive words uh, that reflect their carnal hearts and distort truth. So again, they're going to use words in a like reason because of like foundations so they're going to abuse words. They're going to take good things and distort them, make little of them, mock them because of the carnality of their hearts, their, their own pursuit of lust and the lust of the flesh. Also, like the false teacher, their sure end will be destruction and judgment. The difference when, uh, between how Peter addresses these two offenders as it pertains to judgment, though, is that for the false teacher, it was their stated outcome. Remember that pattern. We just walked through it. They've done this. They've done this. They've done this. They will suffer destruction. They will be brought to judgment. They will be brought to an end. They have a, a sure and kept judgment. But for the mocker, judgment's actually addressed a little bit differently. They're abusing words. Judgment's a big issue. But for the mocker, it's an invaluable element of their perversion of truth. And so they're going after God's righteous judgment, a message that would purport to free others of the burden and fears of judgment, which they state has not and therefore will not come. So they, they would say that God hasn't judged and therefore he will not judge, which is a profound measure of not only arrogance, but ignorance of the testimony of the scriptures. So there's some points of association between these two offenders. And I think that helps us understand their inclusion of the letter. Why would and, you know, I hope as you work through a book, you think about why did he talk about false teachers? So well, there's a reason for that, right? Why did he talk about mockers? Was he just drawing out of a grab bag and thinking of different things he should talk about? No, he's, he's, there's a reason he's developing these arguments. So he spent a lot of times on false teachers. And so I wanted to wrestle through why mockers and why mockers now? Well, again, there's points of relation, distortion of the words of God, distortion of God's judgment. And so there are equal threats in that regard to Christ's church. And as we read 2 Peter chapter 3 together, I also want you to look and listen for these things yourself. So I want you to see these thematic associations with the false teacher to include even how Peter introduces the two. He's going to introduce them in a like fashion, a similar fashion that we're going to really work into a little bit today, a little bit next week as well. But 
I want you to think about, again, the, the character, the nature, the tools, the manners, the outcome, and see if you can't see that uh, chapter 2 and verse 3, they didn't just, well, section here, section here. It's a flowing of an argument and a larger letter here. So let's read 2 Peter chapter 3 together. Peter writes, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, knowing this first of all, that in the last day mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace spotless and blameless, and consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, Fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever, and to the day of eternity. Amen. Okay, so I hope you saw, I hope you're seeing some of these thematic associations, because I think that's valuable in appreciating the, the cohesion of the letter. It's not just a lecture on various threats to the church. They could have done that, right? There could have been a, a special lecture on what are five threats to the church? No, rather he's writing and he wants you to see these things and he's crafting an argument, an exhortation, a warning to the sojourning believers. I also hope that you notice, or, or soon will, that Peter has an expectation that you know of his first letter as well. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you by way of exhortation, by way of remembrance. And he wants you to see that the relationship between the first letter and the second letter. His first letter speaks to the true grace of God that, that pressed us to an eternal perspective, particularly in view of suffering. The second letter speaks to the nature of staying steadfast to the end from, from within the, the public expression of the, excuse me, uh, staying steadfast to the end 
and particularly in view of threats from the uh, threats from within, from the, the public expression of the church. And again, we say public expression because the true church, obviously, is the believing church. The public or broader expression of the church will include false teachers and it will include mockers. So in some ways, the first letter was a treatment on threats from without. And now in his second letter, it's on threats from within. So they're complementary treatments of, of like things for the care of the church. In the first letter addressed the outside world not understanding and maligning the church. In the second letter, the inside world, as it were, not understanding and distorting. So again, complementary elements of these two letters that Peter wants you to keep in mind, and so would I. And as we continue our work through chapter 3, we're also going to see the thematic associations that we've already discussed in regard to the false teachers and mockers, namely abusive words and judgment. But as we've stated, uh, they're framed and developed differently here than they were in chapter 2. So similar themes carry over, expressed differently. So the words of destructive heresies and, and ignorant arrogance are expressed in the denial of the promise of Christ's return. So again, you have destructive heresies of the false teacher, ignorant arrogance. Now it's expressed in the denial of the promise of Christ's return. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, we see, Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And then the matter of judgment, therefore, is wholly dismissed, isn't it? So you've undermined the integrity of Christ's return, and with it, judgment. Because with the absence of Christ's return will also come the absence of a full and final judgment, to include the passing of the present heavens and present earth. And... As you see, the subject of Christ's return and judgment, it effectively fills out the body of the chapter in verses 5 through 16, um, where we see a clear repetition of terms such as destroyed and destruction and perish. Uh, together, those terms and their uh, associated expressions are used seven times in these 12 verses. And with this is also a robust treatment of the surety of Christ's return. And so you see the saturation and overlap of those two primary expressions of, of thematic development, and they culminate in the new creation, which again is part of our blessed hope. And that's expressed in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, seeing these association, I think it, it helps us inform what Peter stated at the outset of this chapter, that he's writing to, to do what? To stir up his readers, to stir up his readers by way of reminder to the end that they, and by extension we, would remember the testimony and commands of the scriptures expressed here in chapter 3 as the word spoken beforehand by the prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken through the apostles. And that should sound really familiar to you. Does that sound familiar in some regard? Not just because we read chapter 3, but because you're students of Second Peter and you remember something. Because Peter's already made a like statement earlier in the book, didn't he? That preceded his intensive engagement of the false teachers. So now he's setting us up for the mockers. And he says, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder to remember the words of the prophets and the words of the apostles. Well, let's look at how he spoke in preparation to the false teachers. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Same language, even though you already know them and have been strengthened in the truth, which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has indicated to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. 
For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have as more sure the prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So it was a much longer, fuller foundation preparation, but some very similar things we're going to see. So Peter's writing with a view to remind. You see that in chapter 3. We saw that in chapter 1. I'm stirring you up to remind you, to keep, to keep precious and necessary truths in front of the believer's mind. That's the nature of reminding. And in this context of his, of his passion and burden to remind it, I think it was both. I think he loved the church, and so he's, he's eager to remind them. He wants them to know, but he also has a burden. He knows he's going to die soon by way of uh, by suffering, as it were. The Lord's already made this plain to him. He also makes clear that he's not seeking for his words to be esteemed as something of, of unique regard in their own right. He's not saying, well, here's my thoughts on these things, but because rather he wants them esteemed, he wants them to remembered, he wants them to be kept before them, because they have an authority that supersedes Peter. He expresses the authoritative testimony of one specially commissioned by the risen Christ and was himself an eyewitness to the public ministry of Christ. That's, that's part of why he takes a little bit of time to develop that. He's going to remind you, I saw, I heard, I was part of this, to include from the time of Jesus' baptism to his ascension. And as you recall, he also speaks to the prophetic word, to the prophetic word with the apostolic testimony affirming and further developing the testimony of the prophetic word as it unfolds additional revelation. So here we have a broad reference to the Old and New Testament scriptures, the words of the prophets, the testimony of the apostles, which Peter exhorts us to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. This is our present circumstances. You need to regard it as precious and you need to value it accordingly until the morning star arises in our hearts or until faith gives way to sight. The day about which we read and we study and we treasure is made perfectly clear and experienced most fully. Then, after he's given that foundation of the testimony of the prophets and the apostles, he makes a statement of firm urgency. Remember, he said, know this first of all. And then he goes on to express a matter of primary importance. And what was that? Namely, the scriptures are God's words. God's words produced by the Spirit of God speaking through men, using their historical and cultural context, as well as their unique personalities and skill sets with language and words. And why does that matter? Well, what's going to happen right after this? The false teachers are going to do what? They're going to assault and attack the integrity of the scriptures. They're going to use their own words to distort things. And they're going to attempt to introduce carnal things in the life of the church. And what are we going to see with the mockers? They're going to challenge the authority and the integrity of the scriptures. And so he picks up a very similar uh, dynamic of introducing, as it were, the integrity and the authority of the scriptures and says, I want to remind you, I want you to remember this. I'm not speaking Peter's words. I'm picking up the testimony of the prophets and the apostles, the very words of God, the inspired words of God. So we see this in chapter 3 where, again, Peter's pressing his readers and us to do what? To remember the pattern of chapter 1 leading into chapter 2, now the pattern of chapter 3, to remember the testimony and commands of the inspired scriptures. 
Not just remember, hey, we had some good times, sweet fellowship. No, he's saying, remember the testimony of the prophets. Remember the testimony of the apostles, the testimony and commands which have um, spoken the ways of God as he's revealed himself throughout history and the expression and development and keeping of his promises, his, his work of creating all things, his acts of judgment, most notably, as he highlights again here in chapter 3, through the worldwide flood. And this is the third time that Peter's made reference to the flood, the Noahic flood in his letters. He did it in 1 Peter. He's done it in 2 Peter twice now. That He speaks again of the worldwide flood. That, and he uses that as a way to express here the judgment to come, even God's character as expressed and revealed through these things. So with this, I hope that you're starting to see the association between the introduction of these two threats. Chapter 1 prepared us for chapter 2 by way of this is the authoritative word of God, the testimony of the prophets and the apostles, that which is going to be attacked by the false teacher, but we already have a good foundation. I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. Now we get to chapter 3. It wasn't just, oh yeah, mockers. He's saying, no, look at the point of connection here. Remember the testimony and the authority of the scriptures because here they're going to be challenged again in a different way. But nevertheless, it's a challenge to the authority and the integrity of the scriptures and with it, the judgment of God and the righteousness to come as well. And so he's given that like foundation, that similar foundation, and he's also done a similar thing in that he says, I'm going to draw a special matter to your attention. Chapter 1, it was the inspiration of the scriptures. And now he's saying, know this first of all. Now in engaging the mockers, we have a, a, a like but different threat to the church. And he again establishes the testimony of the scriptures. And then he says, knowing this first of all, and we have with this, whereas the scriptures served as a check to the perversity of the false teachers in chapter 2, here they provide a firm and plain correction to the arrogantly misinformed content of the mocker speech. So, know this first of all, the integrity of the scriptures are their inspired scriptures. The, the false teachers will seek to undermine, distort them. Knowing this first of all, the scriptures will be challenged, but the scriptures can answer that challenge, can't they? And he's going to develop an answer to that challenge. So thematically, we have two points of firm continuity between the false teacher and the mocker. We also have a, a similar introduction to how Peter engages both of them. Okay, now I would say um, that was all introduction. We, we needed to get to chapter 3, right? And I wanted you to understand the connection between 1, 2, and 3, and the threats to the church, and why Peter's writing, and, and how he's expressing care. But if I were to say that's all introduction, that might dishearten you. Because, um, well, I'm familiar with clocks and times. They, they're there somewhere, and I'm familiar with the sun rises and falls, and we have things to do. So we're going to call that the first wave of our engagement with chapter 3. Is that more palatable? Is that helpful? So that was the first wave of our engagement with chapter 3. We needed to establish a foundation, an introduction. What's the point of connection? And then that's going to be followed by a smaller wave to address the thematic development of the chapter, which will be followed by an initial engagement with verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 3, which will be followed by an exhortation. Don't be like, followed by what next? Followed by fellowship time. So we're going to get there. But I want you to kind of have an idea of where we're walking with this. But that was a necessary foundation point of introduction from 1 to 2 to 3, as it were. And so let's, uh, let's walk through this, uh, this second and smaller wave of addressing a thematic element, um, likely one that doesn't usually receive the same measure of attention um, that I'm going to choose to give it. And I think that's important to highlight because uh, 
It's, uh, it's, it's not a point of connection between the two threads. I'm not drawing it out for that reason. It's really not even a weighty point of doctrine and uh, unpacked by Peter. It's a choice that I'm making in a pastoral context because I want you to know that um, while exposition sometimes will draw things out and we should see things, we need to honor the intent of the flow of the text, sometimes we also draw things out to, to be mindful of the local church body. So I'm going to give us a special uh, exhortation, as it were, of a small thematic development in chapter 3 that isn't going to factor into 1 or 2, but it does. So walk with me for just a moment, because I want you as a local church to, to hear something, to feel something, to think something about how Peter's writing, and I want you to understand why it's of great importance to me, and I hope it will be to you as well. So um, let's walk through this, and the first thing we need to see is his use of beloved. Namely, the affection, I would say, that Peter has for the church, for believers. And with this, I would say it's an intensive use of beloved in this chapter. Not intensive in some grammatical sense, uh, but rather intensive in tone um, and, and in frequency, as it were. Because this is a term of expression of affection, right? We don't just walk around and say, hey, beloved. Well, we might say it to someone in some context, but it's a, it's a term of endearment. It's a term of affection. And he has not been using it throughout the letter. And so when I'm walking through chapter 3 and I see beloved, 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 all of a sudden I start wondering, I wonder why I chose to employ that language there. And I think about who Peter is. We've talked a lot about Peter over the last year and a half, two years or so in terms of his character, his development of character, his apostolic ministry, his, uh, his, his ministry as a, as a pastor, as it were. And so I'm mindful of this, because again, it's a, a term or expression of affection that he's only used twice in his first letter. In 1 Peter, he only used it twice, and this time in expressing the urgency of the believers to maintain a purity, uh, and, and both times um, in very precise ways. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, um, verse 11, uh, the, the one of two times he used it in the first book. He says, Beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. And, and so why is he using it there? Well, he's not used it. Chapter 1, half of chapter 2. And I would say in a very pastoral sense, he's, he's urging maintain purity of life and soul. And so he kind of jars us for a moment. He says, listen, I love you. I want you to hear this. Guard your souls, your sojourners, your exiles. Abstain, flee, run. From that which wage war against the soul. So that was the first time in First Peter, chapter uh, chapter two. And the second time in First Peter, um, following this pastoral exhortation, and um, is uh, another pastoral exhortation about having a proper awareness of their call to righteous suffering. So the book has talked a lot about righteous suffering, and in First Peter chapter four, verse twelve, we read, "Beloved." So again, it's catching our attention with that term of affection. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And so again, you can see that, that pastoral heart. I've talked about suffering. Sufferings come. Beloved, don't be surprised. Beloved, guard your souls. Flee. Run from. Be aware. And also, don't be surprised. So you see that, that uh, affectionate call uh, to preparation and awareness. But those are the only time, two times he uses it in 1 Peter. I think he uses it well, but very limited. Now, in this final chapter of the book, Peter refers to his readers as beloved four times. So, at the minimal, twice as many times, and in one chapter. 
This after having already, he's already highly affirmed them from the outset of his letter. If you remember in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours. And we talked about, he's esteeming to say, you have the same kind of faith as the apostles did. It's not that we're super Christians, we have super faith. It's you have the same kind of faith. He's elevated and he's esteemed the believers. But now, as he looks to the conclusion of his life and of his ministry to the church, Peter finishes his letter here by referring to them as beloved four times. And he includes a fifth usage, as you see up there, in which he refers to Paul as their shared beloved brother, esteeming his affection for Paul. But he's also doing something by saying, he's not just saying my beloved brother Paul, but our beloved brother Paul. He's bringing his readers into this shared relationship. Your beloved, Paul's beloved. So while other themes and points of emphasis are more fully developed in this chapter, I want to just, as we introduce the chapter, and as we start to walk through it, I want to urge you to see this expression of affection for the value that it is. It's not just some throwaway term that he needed to fill it out or, well, he's, he's wrapping up. He needs to be more gentle and more gracious. Now, he was very mindful of those terms. And we're mindful. First, Peter tells us that while they were Peter's words, they were inspired by the Spirit of God. And I would say he uses this term the way he does and where he does because Peter loved Christ church. He loved the church. He was keenly aware of their present and future struggles. And so he wants to affirm and express that affection for the church. Again, he writes to matters which I think he was compelled to write about, um, knowing that his engagement and care for them would soon be ending. He knew this was, this was the end, as it were, for Peter. And so out of an affection for them, he had a passion, had a conviction. But again, it was he loved the church. So the first reference to his readers as beloved comes in verse 1, and we're going to develop that in just a little bit. So for right now, we're going to kind of pass over that one. So that we'll get back to that in just a moment. The second reference to his readers as beloved comes in verse 8. He writes, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. So this comes after he has addressed mockers. We're going to develop this further as we go through the chapter, but this comes after he's addressed the mockers, particularly those who mock the timing of Christ's return, seeing that they regard uh, what they regard as a, a protracted delay. Look, he hasn't come yet. And this was a long time ago, so you can imagine the amplification of the mockers. He still hasn't come. And they see this as grounds to assault the validity of Christ returning altogether. Look, it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. You know, it's probably like, well, maybe it's just me and my cynical nature here. I'll be waiting on something, a service industry-related thing. I ordered something. It's not here. It's never going to come. Well, they're mocking Christ's sure promise. You know, people will fail us, but this is Christ here. And so they're mocking Christ and mocking his return. And Peter, in response, I would say he's acting like a father whose child has had some ugly accusations thrown at them. Look, Christ isn't coming. And that's what's being thrown at the church. And Peter hears that, and he knows that. And so I think very pastorally, very fatherly, it's like a father taking a child that's had some ugly accusations thrown at them and that would seek to undermine their confidence and establish truths. And so he engages his readers as beloved. He doesn't say, now they're a bunch of idiots. He says, beloved, listen to this. Listen to truth and be reminded of that. He who is outside of time and is himself Lord of time does not see the passing of a single day with the urgency that we do who can only number our days. And so he says, beloved, don't miss this. You see the difference? He doesn't just, ah, those idiots, of course he's coming. Don't you know this is God's promise? 
But beloved, the Lord, he's outside of time. He has made promises. He will come. The third reference to his readers as beloved comes in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. Again, having spoken of the, the magnificent character and sure promises of the Lord, matters that shape us and produce joyful longing and expectation, Peter again writes, as a father and as a seasoned pastor who is engaging his precious children, in view of these things, beloved, be diligent. He's not again just saying, all right, you know what to do? Diligence. He's saying, in view of these things, beloved, be diligent. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. And the fourth reference to his readers as beloved comes in verse 17. He writes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So again, Peter is finishing his letter, right? You see that. He's finishing his letter, and now with this, he will have satisfied his driving conviction to have engaged them as an apostle and shepherd one final time. And he finishes his last direct words to them with, Beloved. I think that's really valuable. I think that helps us see the, the tone. I think that helps us see his heart in that. I think that helps us see the nature of his... Uh, uh, eldership, his pastoral ministry, that he's writing them about hard things and his final exhortation is, Beloved, understand this. Beloved, don't forget this. Beloved, hold fast. Okay, so that was our second wave, covering a, a thematic element of the chapter that for me, again, that's invaluable uh, in appreciating the tone and the heart. You know, we talk about how um, in our contemporary context, text and it's hard to get tones and some of you try to introduce tones with emojis and you know what that does that just confuses everybody so stop that but but it's hard to hear tone with words sometimes what were they emphasizing but it's real easy to hear it when you see beloved isn't it ah now you can see that tone i think he's drawing that out and i want to i want you to see that again the tone in the heart of both the chapter and the letter as a whole so now let's begin our first engagement with the text proper. We're going to cover verses 1 and 2. And with this, we'll also finish one last piece of that last thematic element of Peter's use of beloved. So let's, let's consider the first part of our chapter and this first use of beloved that we passed over. And with this, we've spoken to Peter's use of beloved here. And then he's writing to these believers with a view to his imminent death. He's plainly stated this in chapter 1. And he's restating his motivation for writing once more in chapter 3. Um, he has an aim for the letter. And this second expression of his reason for writing comes immediately after, again, a very hard chapter. So he's, he's, he's written, this is why I'm writing to you. He engages the false teachers as a very hard chapter, chapter 2. And then at the conclusion of chapter 2, he sets us up in chapter 3 and reminds us again, this is why I'm writing to you, a chapter in which... Um, again, that hard chapter, he spoke about false teachers. They, they'd be coming among them, coming with the intent to introduce destructive heresies, to malign the reputation of the church, to bring others to destruction. And you can, again, you can imagine the weight of that, or I hope you can. Um, 
And so let's think about this for a moment. Um, we were writing, or if we're up here giving instructions, so when we finish, and we will finish, um, probably Frank will come up here and say, hey, look, we're going to pray for the meal, and then this is the order, and this is how we're going to do things. But what if he were to say, you know what, we're going to pray for the meal, or this is the order of things, and there's going to be a few of you that they're going to take, you're going to take this opportunity to steal from one another. You're going to, you're going to go through bags and grab a few things. You're going to ask somebody to come outside so you can show them something. You're going to hurt. You're going to just punch them in the face. Be like, whoa, what in the world? That's horrible. Do you feel the weight of chapter two though? That, all that would be passing, right? Stuff, it comes and goes. Punches the face, well, it happens. <laughs> I guess. But do you feel the weight now of chapter two when he says, don't you know that false teachers are going to come amongst you? They're not just going to come amongst you and just be like the odd ones out. They're going to hurt people. They're not going to just punch them in the face. They're going to, they're going to assault souls. They're going to malign Christ. That was a hard chapter. It was a very hard chapter. And so I can imagine the burden that he felt as he finished writing that last portion of his letter. Uh, he could... Again, we're, we're imagining on some measure, but how hard he might have been pressing in as he wrote those final letters that they're like dogs. They're like pigs. He wasn't saying, this would be a, this would be a funny analogy. Now I think he's saying, they are like the dogs returning to their vomit. They're like the pigs that go back after they've been washed. He's not just indifferent. I think if he was a man of passion, that's, there's no question about that, right? And so you can imagine the weight and the burden as he finished that final chapter, as it were, and the weight that was on him. And truthfully, it frustrates me a little bit. Not Peter. Not Peter doesn't frustrate me, but it frustrates me that as much as I work to participate, to participate in the care of this church, and that's, this, is, this is what I do, and that's what I do along with Frank, it's what I do along with Matt, and all of you, right? You work hard for the care of this church. It's very plain. Sometimes it's more obvious. Days like this, it becomes even more obvious because you get to shine in different ways. But it bothers me that as hard as I and we work to, for the care of the church, I don't know that, that I certainly have felt a sufficient burden here. And it's probably, in my case at least, because you're mindful of the exhortation of the finish of Hebrews to, to make our work easy, and you have. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I know it may not always be that case, but you've made the work of shepherding relatively easy for that. I know Frank and Matt and I are grateful. We don't have meetings that are like, oh, they did it again. We're just mindful of what's happening in their lives. How can we pray? How can we walk with them? But there is a proper burden that should accompany Peter's words here. Because threats will come. And if that doesn't burden us, there's something wrong. We're not getting it. And it bothers me that it bothers me, but not enough. Does that make sense? I think we should feel a weight to that. And I know Peter felt that burden and how compounding it must have been to write these things as he approached the finish of his natural life. Peter's not saying threats are coming and we're going to buckle up. We're going to do this together. What does he say? The Lord has made it plain that the time of my natural sojourning is coming to a conclusion. And you need to know that false teachers are coming. And you need to know that mockers will will assault and blaspheme and make little of the precious promises of our faith. So I think he wrote with an extraordinary burden. And as he wrote about weighty and terrible things, but again, not for some expose of wicked people, but to make the true believers aware and to produce in them both a proper confidence and a righteous vigilance. So how natural 
for this apostle and shepherd of Christ's church to then open his final statements by written word, by re-engaging his readers as beloved. You see that now? Hard, heavy things that bothered him. I know it bothered him. It should bother us. But then he writes, this now, beloved, is the second time I'm writing you by, to, to stir you up by way of remembrance. He loves the church. He's burdened. And out of that burden, he's expressing an affection. And this is, why he's, this is how he's engaging. This is how he's writing to them. Now for a second time, for a like purpose, that of stirring up the mind by way of reminder. He's aiming to bring truth to the front of their minds. You know, that's what stirring up by way of reminder does. It brings truth to the front of your mind. You might say, I, I know that. That's good. Now you need to be thinking about it. You need to be engaging with it. You need to be chewing on it. It needs to be a dominant presence in your mind. He wants them to have to recall it. He wants them to dwell on it. He, needs them to, he wants them to act on it. That's the nature of stirring up known truth for a believer, right? You might, nobody, I hope nobody leaves and goes, oh, they just kept repeating doctrines that are the foundations of the faith and precious promises. Well, I hope you think about that, right? We're stirring it up by way of reminder. This, and again, this is one of the primary, one of the primary functions of our weekly meetings where there's a mixture of instruction. What we do further develop and mature one's understanding of the scriptures. That is part of our responsibility. We're not just saying, hey, let's, let's talk about things we know all the time. We're trying to draw things out, make things more plain uh, with a measure of instruction. That, but also, that's part of the work of keeping truth actively before you. Even things you know mingled in there, things that we're working on, things that we're developing, things that you already know, stirring it up in your mind so as to produce recollection of it. Why do you need to have a recollection of it? So that you would dwell on it. Why do you dwell on it? That you're meditating, musing, chewing on it, that you might act in accordance with it. Right? There's a purpose for these things, and Peter had that in mind. This is part of loving the Lord with our mind, isn't it? It's not just, oh, I love Jesus, whoever he is and whatever he's done. It's, I love Jesus because of who he is and what he's done. And I know that because my mind has truth that's just percolating. It's just bouncing around and saturating it. So, it's, and, and we need to be mindful. Again, this is not just part of loving our, uh, the Lord with our mind, and it's also not just part of our local church culture. Well, this church is a more teaching-oriented church, and we... Probably, by evaluation, we would be evaluated that way, a more teaching-oriented church. And maybe another church might be a more service-oriented church. As though the two are in conflict for primary attention in the local body. That's not, that's not one or the other, is it? It's not, well, this dad's more, more caring, and this dad's more providing. Well, I mean, you kind of hope they're both, right? Um, you, you don't want, well, we got this one at least. Rather... <laughs> Teaching in both its providing further insight and in its stirring up the mind by way of reminder or remembering established truths serves as a necessary foundation for other expressions of faith and service. So when we stir it by way of reminder through our teaching and, and, and bringing things back to the, the front of your minds, it impacts those areas of faith and service. You're doing to include how we pray, right? We don't just pray mindlessly. We pray in view of truth. One of the things that we like to do is we look at the psalm that we've read and work through every week, and we think about what does the psalmist say? What truth are they expressing that I can join in? What, what have we learned about in Second Peter? What have we learned about in the life of Christ? What have we learned about in, in supplemental teaching and instruction and lessons should inform how we pray, how we sing? So again, we've talked about this before, but we don't just put words up there and, you know, just, that was a nice melody. Let's sing that. We're singing truth. 
It informs how we evangelize. So Andre and Patricia were, were laboring and, and, and the work of evangelism. They weren't just saying, here's my thoughts on God and his truths. They were drawing from things that they know from the scriptures, things that were brought to mind, that were brought to the forefront of their mind from labor and study. It impacts how we bear up under suffering. You're not going to suffer well if you don't understand truth, right? Remember, Peter said, Beloved, understand these things. Know this is going to happen. He provides truth and instruction for how to suffer properly. It impacts how we mortify the flesh. How are you going to do what you're told to do in holiness and fleeing from these things if you don't have truth in the front of your mind? Back pocket, truth's not as effective. It needs to be front of mind. How we protect the integrity of the church. What are you going to do when false teachers come in and amongst you? If the truth hasn't been reminded and stirred up in front of you, you might be like, I don't know, that sounds kind of good. Or haven't thought of it that way. Well, there's a reason, because it's a distortion. And how we execute the many one another's. Um, we can want to do uh, signs and expressions of love for one another and carry out the one another's of Scripture, but we don't know how to until we know how to. It impacts how we work, we go about our, our daily lives. There's not a mundane element of our work. It's an expression of theology and truth. And so the list could continue. And Peter has been clear in expressing his conviction to remind both here and, as we saw in chapter 1, that his efforts are so that believers would know, would grow, and stay. Remember, that was functionally the purpose of our book here, that we would know, grow, and stay. A function of that is by stirring you up by way of reminder. And both times that he speaks to stirring up the beloved by way of reminder, he roots the means and content of his reminding to the scriptures. Remember that? I hope so. Stirring you up by way of reminder that when he reminded us, he went to the scriptures. And when he reminds us again, he goes to the scriptures. And as we've addressed today in chapter 1, this was expressed by the apostolic testimony and the prophetic word, both spoken of as the spirit-inspired scriptures. And here in chapter 3, we see the same pattern. Here expresses the word spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of Christ through the apostles. Again, he writes, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you by which I'm stirring you up by sincere way of reminder that you should remember not Peter's words, not your pastor's words necessarily, but words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, the testimony of the scriptures. And this will bring us to the second threat of the letter, namely the mocker and Peter's robust rebuttal of their arrogantly uninformed distortions of God's truth, a matter that we're going to pick up next week. Because, believe it or not, we've completed our initial engagement with chapter 3 now. And now we've, now, that doesn't mean we finished the first sentence yet, but Peter had a long sentence. It was not a Pauline sentence, but it was long. But I want to pause here, I want to stop here. Um, and we're going to finish our time in the text, but and this is uh, not because I'm aware that we're having a fellowship meal when the service is over, and uh, I'm mindful of my recent teaching patterns. There might be a measure of fear that the cold stuff's going to get warm, the warm stuff cold, but rather, I wanted to set a tone for us. I wanted you to see the connection between 1, 2, and 3. I wanted you to hear that pastoral affection he had for the church. I wanted you to understand the nature of stirring up by way of reminder in the connection to the scriptures. And I wanted you, again, to, to see these things uh, take shape and, and inform not only the letter, but, again, how we think about these things. It's my effort to, to stir you up by way of reminder. And, again, to understand also that shift from false teachers to the whole different threat and enemy, the mockers, because that's part of our experience. Part of contemporary experience is that people mock truth, don't they? 
And now it's bled over into entertainment in a way that I think we miss sometimes. We miss how much mocking is happening right before us, which is a whole other way of mocking, isn't it? That they can mock and we don't seem to mind. Um, rather, I hope that we would have a new, new measure of burden and we would answer mocking with the scriptures as Peter's going to do in, a, in the, the weeks that we'll see ahead. Also, I'm mindful that we are celebrating Thanksgiving. And I was talking to Denise, I don't have a unique burden to every time we have a special occasion to give a special exhortation, but I do think because we're worshipers and there's a connection between Thanksgiving and worship, it's a good opportunity to make some connections with 2 Peter 3, Thanksgiving and expressions of worship. So let's look at some things as we come to a conclusion here. Consider some matters for which we should give thanks. And I'll remind you again that Thanksgiving is an expression of worship, so let's let's gauge ourselves accordingly. So as we've walked through some things, here's some principles we could draw. We can give thanks for the following four things. We can give thanks to God that when Peter engaged his readers as beloved, he was communicating a precious care and affection for them. A care and affection of a faithful under-shepherd who knew the burdens of God's people, uh, who are sojourning in a challenging world, that is made all the more challenging by internal threats of the false teacher to the church and also the broader threats of others and their mocking of our precious hope. And with this expression of thanksgiving, remember that as much as Peter cared for the church, and he did, I hope you saw that. I, I'm trying to draw that out. If you didn't see it, look harder. It's there. But recognize that as much as he cared for the church, was it Peter's church? This is an easy one. It's a softball quiz answer. The answer is no. So as much as he cared for the church, was this was it ever Peter's church? No. I haven't persuaded you. We don't leave till we get this. As much as Peter loved the church, was it ever Peter's church? No. no. Okay. And I emphasize that because I want you to remember it. This is not our church either. It's not, wow, well, you, you sure do love this church because it's your church. It's, it's not my church. It's not Frank's church. It's not Matt's church. It's not your church. Christ's church. And so as much as Peter expresses that beloved language, and as much as he expresses an affection for the church, it's but a glimpse of the expression of Christ's more perfect care of his bride for whom he will return and his own good timing. And I want you to give thanks to God for that, that Peter loved the church, and that impacted how he wrote, how he thought, how he engaged us. But thanks be to God that Christ loves his church all the more perfectly. So that's a grounds for extraordinary thanksgiving. And with this, we have our second matter of special thanksgiving. Give thanks to God that we have a sure and perfect promise of Christ's return. He doesn't love his church and just kind of like, boy, I wish I could come get them. I wish I could complete the work I started them. I wish I could bring them to myself and usher in the eternal state and enjoy them forever. Or they can enjoy me forever. But we rather we have a sure and perfect promise of his return, don't we? So we can give thanks to God for that, expressed here with the anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth. You know, this is, again, the, the source of mocking, but it is the source of our great joy, right? An object of thanksgiving. And we'll look at this more next week, but even here we have a view to, to something so glorious and, and that sure and future inheritance that for which we so longingly await. And we can get, again, for now, we give thanks. We can also give thanks to God for our sure and enduring hope. This is our third area of special thanksgiving. Give thanks to God that he is a righteous um, judge as well. Um, this is part of our enduring hope that part of that is that he will return for his own and he will deal justly 
when he returns as well. A major point of emphasis that he develops through chapter 3. So give thanks to God that he's a righteous judge. And with this, I hope something comes to mind. We talked about it in First Peter or Second Peter chapter 2, when we talked about the nature of judgment as was developed with the angels, the Noahic generation, and also uh, the cities of the valley, Sodom and Gomorrah. But with that, I reminded you, what's the nature of the character of God as judge? And sometimes we ask the same question. We think about the same thing that, uh, that Abraham did as he's wrestling with God, really wrestling not because of the concept of judgment, but that mercy might be expressed in judgment. And remember what he said in Genesis 18, 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do justice? And he asked that with a heavy heart. He was petitioning, God have mercy. If there's this many righteous, would you say, okay, don't, don't be upset. If there's this many, and he's building up to Lord, Will you not deal justly? And the answer is a resounding yes. He will deal justly. Yes, the judge of all the earth will do justice. So again, I hope that we thank God for the justice that he applies. That his righteousness will be satisfied. That his holiness will be vindicated. And part of that, you should give thanks to God that the justice due for you was satisfied in Christ. You recognize that, right? That it's not just, yay, God does justly. But in his application of justice toward me... It was through the punish or through the suffering of the Son. We're saying about that. I hope we believe it to be true. And also we can rejoice that the justice that the wicked, unbelieving world deserves will be fully satisfied in God's timing. The mockers will be silenced. The false teachers will be brought to a proper conclusion. And those who have just rejected Christ's unbelief will have a proper response when the day of the Lord comes like a thief and the heavens pass away with the roar, the elements being destroyed with intense heat, and the earth melts with fire. A precious reality, but also a hard one, isn't it? We've prayed about this. We think about this because we do have unbelievers for whom we care about who will not bear up under God's righteous judgment. So really, we can also give thanks for maybe a, a supplemental tag underneath this that as Peter stated, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient. Give thanks to God he's being patient, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If the Lord came back today, or let's back it up. If he came back yesterday, there are many people that we're praying for. They would die, or they would not die. They would immediately face judgment in their unbelief, right? But he's patient, so we continue to give thanks to God for his patience. And fourth and final area of special thanksgiving um, will be that we're called to steadfastness. And this is a major thing that we're called to. It's not just where we have precious and magnificent promises. Sit back and enjoy the ride. You need to know there's going to be some dangerous things along the way, but he keeps you. You're fine. Now, what have we been called to? Steadfastness. And while we've been called to steadfastness, we can also know that while we labor and spend ourselves in striving to be faithful, striving to be holy, striving to be Christ-like, that we also know that Christ will keep his own. And we should give thanks to God for that. That, you know, when they mock, it don't stick. When the false teacher assaults, it won't ultimately undo what Christ has done not in those who are genuinely in faith. There's no threat that can overwhelm his faithfulness to his beloved. Not false teachers, not mockers, or, as our beloved brother Paul stated, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38-39. So for this, and so much more, I think Peter's um, directing us 
he's directing us in a way to caution and prepare us. But also, I think he would take great pleasure in directing us to have hearts of thanksgiving. It's not just morose, beloved, bad days ahead. I don't think that was the whole story. I think he would rejoice, and then the Lord's pleased with our expressing thanksgiving. So we have lo lots of things, much more we could draw out. But again, the fact that um, you are beloved, beloved not just by one another, but by Christ himself, that we have perfect promises of our Lord's return, and we long for and anticipate that, that we have a righteous judge, but a righteous judge that's patient, and that Christ will keep us. Mockers, false teachers, whatever comes, Christ will keep his own. So we have reasons to be abounding in thanksgiving, to join the psalmist in the praise, Yah, or the hallelujah, as it were. So let's pray. We'll give thanks to God for these things. We'll sing together, and then we'll enjoy some time of fellowship as well. Lord, we thank you for the preciousness of your word as expressed through Peter. We recognize that this was very much Peter, but it was Peter writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And so, what a kind gift you've given your church. You, you um, worked in a man that uh, he, was, he was very rough around the edges, but passion uh, and strength marked his life. And you, you found satisfaction in refining and reforming him. And through that process, you um, allowed him to participate in the leading and caring of your church and as an apostle. He wrote about things that are hard for us in First Peter with suffering. Nobody, nobody looks forward to suffering. But what a kindness that uh, he wrote to us about the nature of suffering in a way that is pleasing to you and that, that bears up under the trials that come. And now in Second Peter, we've... We've walked through a lot of things. We've walked through things that will strengthen us in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we saw the, the nature of the threat and the vile nature of the false teacher and the, the harm that they produce. But we know you'll keep your own. We know that you'll also keep the unrighteous for judgment. And now, as we approach chapter 3, we, we've just introduced this new enemy, as it were, the mocker. Something we'll come back to and develop further with time, but we wanted to see first uh, the nature of that, that language and the tone. It's not just about promises. It's about an affectionate, faithful promise-keeping God. And so we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you love your church. We love, you love your church more perfectly than we can love one another. But yet you've commanded us to love one another, so we want to be found faithful. And we thank you that um, mockers might come. They will come. They have come. But just as with the false teacher, we have the same formidable weapon, namely the Word of God. And it's the inspired Word of God. It's the sure Word of God. And to it we will cling and give our attention. To it we will remember and be draw, uh, draw things back to remembrance. That we might stand steadfast. So that we will stand steadfast. And so the very things that are mocked, it would be all the more preciously affirmed. That you will come. You will come quickly. And you will do magnificent things, uh, as beautiful as this world and its natural creation is, even in its fallen condition. And we think about the, the recent lunar eclipse and so many people enjoying a magnificent thing that only happens a couple of hundred years. Uh, we think about the sequoias that people are so sad about, and reasonably so. Trees that are hundreds, if not over a thousand years old, just magnificent things. All will be consumed with fire. 
not just because you're angry, but because you will institute a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And you're going to prepare us for that place. You'll prepare us to live where righteousness dwells. So we thank you, Lord, and ask that you would uh, increase our our burdens in the proper sense of feeling the weight of things that we ought to, but also increase our affections and with them our thanksgiving. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.